Hello, and welcome to The Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone. Thank you for being here. Welcome to The Canadian Story. I'm joined today by my co-host and cousin, David Parker, and our guest, Rick Abbott. Rick, welcome to the show, and thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So why don't you go ahead and brief your background so that we know who we're listening to and tell us a little bit about your story, and then we will jump into the conversation. Sounds good. I call myself a lifer. There was one of my earliest memories was wanting to be a police officer growing up. Uh, I successfully was hired by the Edmonton Police Service in 1996. I had a thriving career with the Edmonton Police Service. A very unique career. Over 25 years, I spent most of my time operational. So I was on uh, basically work between beats and patrol units early in my career. I was an early hire into one of their tactical teams as a sniper. I worked uh, through the firearms teams teaching uh, uses of firearms. And then I was promoted again through back to patrol services. So most of my career has been operational. Uh, It came to an abrupt end after I showed a political opinion on my days off during the uh, demonstrations in Milk River and Coots. Okay. Go go ahead, David. So you, um, what made you decide to take that uh, step of going to Coots? Because obviously there, <clears throat> there are some people, many people who don't uh, don't agree with what happened uh, during the convoy. Obviously, you do. So, on the Canadian story, we like to make the argument, make the case, tell the story. So, what is your story around how you got to the point of deciding that you wanted to go down there and be with the protesters? I had been watching the legacy media, the mainstream media, and I had been watching independent media sources. I've been talking to police officers about what was going down in Milk River and Coots. I saw it as a powder keg. I saw it as a volatile situation, and I did not want to see violence happen in my home province of Alberta. The problem was that Before I even went there, I had decided that somebody was not telling the truth. Somebody was lying about the narrative down there. The mainstream media was making the people down there out to be terrorists of sorts. So it's a small world in the policing world. And my number got to a fellow that you'll know, uh, Danny Bulford, one of the XRCMP snipers. So Danny and I speak the same language. I I speak both in minutes of angle and in metric with uh, Uh, in the shooting world. So I got a message to him that I wanted to talk to him while he was in Ottawa. I wanted to hear what was going on because we speak the same language. It didn't take us long to trust each other. And I asked him, what's going on here down here? Are are there bad guys involved in these? He said, don't believe me. He says, it's going to be the same people in Milk River that are here in Ottawa. He said, go see for yourself. So that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. I put a message out to some other local police officers asking who wants to go and see what's going on down there. I wanted to see for myself. That was the catalyst that got me to go visit Milk River. But why why did you want to go see? Like, what was it about it that interested you, right? Because 
if it's being painted in this way, like you said, by the mainstream media, but of course painted differently by the alternative media, what made you curious about what was going on? I was mostly afraid. I was afraid that this was going to turn into a violent confrontation. It, it wouldn't take much for these scenarios to go sideways. My experience in uh, the tactical world, civilians usually call it SWAT, um, and my understanding of lawful placement of police officers in demonstrations like this led me to believe that if what Danny was telling me was true, it was good Canadians down there demonstrating against what they saw as moral corruption in the laws that were being pushed on them, then they have that lawful authority to be there to protest. And I was afraid that it was going to go bad. So I had two goals, really, when I went down there. One was to confirm who's telling the truth, because there was no middle ground in this conversation that was happening. You were either a terrorist or you were good people looking out for the constitutional rights of Canadians. So I wanted to confirm that. And then the second one was that I wanted to encourage both Canadians and the police down there to make sure that this ended peacefully. That's what got me moving. So, okay. so walk us through what you saw when you arrived, what what your uh, observations were of the situation. Cops are good at this. I'm judging you right now. <laughs> All humans have a, a good way of uh, understanding who people are when they first meet them. I call it a threshold assessment. When we arrived, and I, I have to be careful with some of the things that I talk about here, when I say we... I went down with another Edmonton police officer, and there, there's no secret about this. Another constable, her name was Alana Golishova. She had done an online video in uniform that had got her into some hot water with my employer, or my former employer. She's still under investigation under the police act, so she's not allowed to communicate with me uh, about any of the uh, occurrences in Milk River and Coots, although she was there beside me when we were there. There's, there's no secrets. Anyway, she's bound not to talk about it. So uh, when I say we, I'm, I'm talking about Elena and I that traveled south. My first impression when I drove into Milk River is that we were at the biggest Canada Day celebration ever. There's no other way to describe this. It was a party. So from here in, let's call it the party. It was Canadians. It was you and I. It was, to call it truckers, actually, I would say it wasn't. I would if I was to use one term to describe the people down there, it was farmers. And I, I come from a rural background in Saskatchewan. It was electricians. It was uh, business owners. It was your aunt. It was your uncle. It was kids. It was jumpy castles and barbecues. It took me 10 seconds to realize who was lying. The legacy media, the government was lying about who was attending this. It was a it was a party, so that was my first impression. Okay, so who did you? And I don't mean specifically. Like I'm not asking you to name names, but what people did you talk with there? So you know, farmers, barbecues, parties. There was an atmosphere there, and these people were there standing up for something. When you, I imagine you engaged in conversation with them. What sorts of things were you guys conversing about? What was the energy on the ground at the border? I introduced myself as a cop when I was there. 
Everybody I met, I said, I'm a current serving police officer and I encouraged them to remain peaceful. We, we spoke about all of the other topics that you're talking about on your show. And I spoke to hundreds of people. Eventually, I, actually early into my visit to Milk River, I was asked if I would take a stage, an impromptu stage that was set up to address a crowd of, there was quite a few people there, probably 200 people. So even prior to that, though, I'd, I'd met your aunt and your uncle. I'd talked to the people at the barbecues. Um, the one thing I did notice that different about this crowd, though, the demographics were, they were professionals in the sense that it, it's people I really respect. I never saw an open beer. Hmm. <laughs> they were they were you and I there that would put, if if there was alcohol, and there had to have been, it was such a good barbecue, they put it into go cups. They put it into coffee cups. Those were the kind of people that were in Milk River. So that that speaks to my heart. Those people are on my side. Thank you. Have a good time and do it safely and do it respectfully. So I spoke to all those walks of life from business owners that had talked about the trucking issues that we're going to, uh, the supply issues that we're going to see now. Nurses that had lost their jobs because they refused to take the uh, so-called vaccines. I should show my hand on this right away too. Uh, I I was coerced early into taking the vaccines. So I, I took their drugs, embarrassingly. It's the only one of the few embarrassing things I've done in my life. But I, I was there speaking to all walks. And then when I was asked to speak publicly to encourage these people, I thought this was a great idea. I told them that I wanted to make sure that this ended peacefully. And I, I encouraged them that if they didn't stay peaceful, their message be, would be lost to Canadians. And so all I did was tell that to a crowd and somebody recorded it on their phone, obviously. It's, it's easily found on the internet, I think. I, I told them that as long as they were peaceful in Milk River, they were lawfully placed. And there would be nothing for the police to do other than shake hands and their message would be born properly to the Canadian populace. And I was preaching to the choir there, to tell you the truth. They got it. But mm. it was encouraging. I, I, I got a sense that they were encouraged for a current cop to say, you keep doing this and this will turn out okay. Okay, so I think there's an interesting distinction in there that I would kind of like to to grapple with a little bit. Um, because... I, to my understanding, and I think to most people's understanding, um, lawful protest is peaceful, right? If if you you were allowed to demonstrate as long as you were demonstrating peacefully, but there's a funny thing that happens when you shut down an international border. Um, so, from your perspective as a police officer, or I guess former police officer now, um, you keep saying that they were they were lawful in their demonstration. Do you have any? like understanding it as to how that plays out when they are also lawfully demonstrating by shutting down an international border, because that's, that's a, an important distinction and, and a point of contention within this argument. And I don't mean to ask that question to draw like any sort of negative light on the people that were there, because in my personal opinion, those people did a great service to our country. And I think they are heroes, but it is interesting to have the conversation. So was it legal for them to shut down a border? This is an important distinction, and it applies not just to your question, but it applies to the Edmonton Police Service when they insinuated 
that I gave that talk that I just described in Coots, Alberta. So you're right. There were two demonstrations going on at that time. One was in Milk River. That was the RCMP that had blockaded, and I actually agree with them, the highway to limit access to the border at Coots. Okay. So the people there were demonstrating with the RCMP having blocked the highway. I believe that that was legal for them to demonstrate there. The people who were in Coots, that's a different story. They'd blocked an international border. That's not legal. Okay. Although they, they had left a lane open for safety and only the Canadian <laughs> demonstrative way they can, they, they'd left a, a safety lane open up the Coots, but um, the story gets even better when I when I traveled down to Coots, where their their lawyer admitted that you're you're correct. They had effectively blocked a border in Coots. I did not speak publicly in Coots, Alberta. I did travel down there. I wanted to see what happened in Coots while I was down there. So when I got to Coots, it was clear this is different. They were blocking an international border, not legal. But what I did do while there was speak with the organizers, uh, the de facto organizers who were leading that charge. And I told them a different story in front of their lawyers. I did not speak publicly. I spoke to these few men who were running it, and I told them, you're getting arrested. This is coming to an end. Here's how you do it safely, and here's how you do it saving face to make sure that there's no bloodshed, that there's no violence, and that your message isn't tarnished so my reasons were in coots were different than in in milk river so thank you for bringing up that distinction and that's very important for everybody to understand not only in the overall story but in my story so when i was charged under the police act of discredible conduct the service insinuated to the edmonton police commission when i was suspended without pay that i gave that talk in coots I did not do that. And you're one of the first people to hear the, the truth from the horse's mouth. Okay. So that's very interesting. So you were reprimanded by the Edmonton police service for having supposedly given a speech in Coots that you did not give. Is that correct? That's right. And, and the insinuated, the insinuation is of discreditable conduct that I was consorting on my time off with the criminal types. Right. The irony of Wow, that's incredible. But they would that they would say that it was criminal types. So you'd have to understand who Rick Abbott is more too. Um, that discreditable conduct is there in the police act to limit police from hanging around with, say, Hell's Angels on their time off. So the idea that Rick Abbott was hanging around criminals down there is so ironic. My children have never been to the Edmonton Klondike days because of the criminal element there. I don't want to be around that. And then for them to essentially, and I, this is a tongue in cheek term when I say fire me, because there's no other way around this. They fired me for being around criminal types is asinine. So let's get into that part of the story. So basically you go down to Coots, you see that, you see the biggest Canada Day celebration that uh, that you've ever seen. You talk to a lot of people uh, at Milk River. Then you go down to Coots. You explain that the, to them that they're uh, unlawfully 
you know, blocking the border and, and how to be arrested without violence, that sort of thing. You go back home. What happens after that? Within a week, someone had posted on social media a video of me speaking in Milk River. Um, the uh, second charge from the Edmonton Police Service was that I misused social media against their policy by posting that. Here's the other thing that uh, they didn't investigate very well. I've, I'm one of the few people in North America who've never had a Facebook account, not even a shadow one. I, I have never been on there. So that is not true either. Somebody in a public place videotaped me encouraging people to be safe in Milk River. And the police service said that I unlawfully posted that. So it didn't take long for uh, me to be suspended without pay within a week. I was given a, a week's administrative leave where I thought it would be investigated. So I, I thought internal affairs, and we call it professional standards branch. I thought professional standards branch is going to want to hear what happened. Nobody asked. Nobody asked this story. I was just simply suspended for for discreditable conduct. Um, the idea that I, part of the idea was that I'm not supposed to express a, a political point of view. And the irony of this too, of course, is that even just months before my trip down to Milk River on my day off, we've had legions of pictures of Edmonton police officers and video supporting a corrupt, openly Marxist organization on duty in uniform. So it was okay for our membership to support Black Lives Matter, like I said, an openly corrupt and Marxist organization on duty, but I wasn't allowed to have an opinion on my day off. And it's uh, this is one of the two goals I'd hope to get across here in your interview today is first the plight of what uh, I've gone through and having my career canceled like that, but secondly, to show the draconian nature of the police act where people are asking, why are the police not speaking up? I'm the example why they're not speaking up. They cannot. They oh, will lose yeah. their jobs if they go against the orthodoxy. Okay, so that's an important thing to dive into because like so many of, of um, so many portions of society right now, it seems as if ideology has seeped into the bones of the police service in, in the sense that you can support one cause politically, but you cannot support another. There is no even standard um, that that um, people can clearly abide by. So do you, like you've you've been you were a member of the police force for quite a long time. Did you see this sort of thing coming or did it just all fly out of nowhere at your face during kind of this this, you know, these past couple of years? No, it's been coming. Uh the thing of the day or the the orthodoxy of the day has been creeping into our institutions just like any other institution. And Dr. Gadsad's book on the parasitic mind uh, outlines this perfectly. I, there's nothing I can explain here that he doesn't do in his book. Those bad ideas are inside of our institutions. But this instance was a time for the police service to act. So even though I'm a trusted member within my milieu amongst my colleagues, as soon as I spoke out against the, their ideology, I got canceled. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, is this how is how is the ideology distributed within the force itself? So there's there's there seems to be a problem, and we talked about this with uh, in our uh, police on guard episode as well. There seems to be a problem with, um, for lack of a better term, upper management. There seems to be at the head an ideology that is permeating through the way the force is conducted. What about the individual members, the, the your colleagues? or former colleagues, the, the people that you spent your days enforcing law with, what are those people like? This is a common question. And all I can say is they're no different than the rest of Canada. They suffer from the same problems of Canadians and it's, it's hard for them to speak up. So I call it the tactical rule of thirds. One third will agree with you. One third are keeping their heads down and don't care. And the other third are truly scared. So within the division that I worked at, so I was promoted up to staff sergeant, which is one promotion below a commissioned officer. Uh, I was one of a handful, a few that were openly speaking out against the mandates within the police service. And nobody else was because of the fear of getting your head chopped off if you did speak out i want to clarify I had a, specifically, I had a different you specifically vaccine mandates or different yeah, mandates within the police service okay so specifically, specifically you were speaking out and against policies okay and policies within the police service so i did bring attention to myself earlier in the fall of 2021 the edmonton police service had a policy to segregate the people who had decided not to take the vaccines and I was a, a commander of one of the divisions. So on, on any given shift, I'd be, I'd have 50 or 60 people working within the division. I'd be, I'd be working for them throughout a, a shift. Out of those 50 or 60 people, I would know of five or six that had decided not to take the vaccines just because of Rumorville, or they came and openly spoke to me about their plight within the division. So Police officers that decided not to take the vaccine had to get tested every 30, every three days. So that would mean that those people would be in our division supposedly without COVID. Everybody else, we'd know, you wouldn't know whether or not they had COVID. But I spoke out against the policy of the police service that said they couldn't use our lunch rooms. So out of those 60 people in the division, I knew the six of them that were truly not sick were the ones that were tested that day. When I made a complaint to then Justice Minister Casey Madhu that our members were being segregated based on their health choices, because it made no sense. The service had shown their hand. The ones that were actually not with the flu were not allowed to use the lunchroom, but they were allowed to go out and ride in a police car together, arresting bad guys, fighting, throwing people in the back of the car. But then you come back to the division and you couldn't eat together. So I had members coming to me and saying, listen, Rick, they're calling a boardroom in the division I worked at the shame room because those who decided not to vaccinate had to go eat on their own in the shame room, not allowed to use the lunchroom. And so I had had enough at that point. Their measures were arbitrary before that, but now they've shown their hand. You're, this is some evil stuff. You're, you're openly cur, uh, 
you're openly trying to uh, bully people into taking these vaccines by arbitrary evil policies like this. That leadership seeps down into our membership. So because of that segregation that was allowed inside the service, you'd get other people, other cops that would openly say evil things like we shouldn't let them use the healthcare system now if they don't want to use, if they don't want to take the vaccines. So otherwise, smart people, like these are one of my sergeants that said she didn't think that our members that took vaccines should have access to medicine. That they, but yet I'd remind them that you're going to go help at least one, you're going to go save one life tonight in your squad from a fentanyl overdose, and you're going to help transport that person to the hospital. So cops are no different than the rest of the population. Some of them were truly parasitized by these bad ideas and saying evil, evil things. So the police are no different than the rest of the population. We thought that they'd have investigative skills that would see that this is wrong. And we thought that they had sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution and protect everybody's beliefs. But that isn't what's happened with the police. And my getting culled from the populace means I'm not going to become a commissioned officer. So I have a different idea. So to ensure that my ideas aren't permeated through the police service, they just fired me. Mm. It's, it's problematic in so many ways. The most obvious way is that based on your story, and I assume that your story, although personal to you, is probably not the only unique story like this in, in the police force across the country. Um, there, there has been a weeding out of people who are willing to speak up against something that they see is wrong. And that hasn't just happened in policing. That's happened in a number of different places. And those, those people who are the ones who are willing to step out and say, I don't feel comfortable with this. We should have a conversation about this have been pushed to the sidelines. And that's, that's a problem. And, um, but <sighs> But I also see it in in the opposite light because there are people that I observed throughout the pandemic who were on that page of, well, they should just, if, if they don't want to be vaccinated, they should just be forced to be vaccinated. They should just be dragged out of their homes and put in a chair and tied down and vaccinated, or they shouldn't be allowed to access healthcare or any of these, what I hope we all understand now as silly ideas. I see a lot less of that now. And I don't want to just be negative here. I, I those opinions, although loud at the at the time, I don't think necessarily are very well represented anymore because I don't think, I think we're so far out now that we just don't see it the same way as what we did. Did you observe any, like, have you seen anyone turn around? Not, in, not so extreme as to go from, I don't think these people should be allowed to access healthcare to, I think, you know, the vaccines are all a lie. But have you seen people go from, Hey, like one side of the argument to the at least a more nuanced and central position. Like, do you see that within the force? I don't know. You've maybe been out of the force for too long now. Um, but did you observe any of that? No. Oh, that's and a problem. Sadly, <laughs> sadly uh, Thomas Sowell nailed it when he said that people will forgive you for being wrong. They will not forgive you for being right. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So where are we now then? Like what... 
we're, this is something that we've been trying to hash out on this podcast for so long. Like, where are we now and how do we go forward and build a more unified and strong country that loves each other, respects each other, and builds each other up? How do we do that right now? I've been listening to your show and a few of your guests have said this, including Dr. I think McCullough says this, where we have to wait with open arms for the people to come around and see the nastiness that was done. And we have to understand that they were duped. And I do understand that. They they were my friends were duped. A lot of us, I was duped. We were all duped. And we have to be here. Here's a SWAT guy telling you. We have to be here for them with love and open arms. Mm -hmm. That is true. The other part of this that's true, I think, two things can be true at the same time, is that we need some accountability to those who push these in leadership positions that push these tyrannical evil mandates. So in my case, I am a unique position. I don't know of another police officer across Canada who did anything thing like I did and was pushed out of the service for it. The idea that I retired is not intellectually honest. I was at the peak of my career at 25 years, both economically for my family, but also uh, operationally for the police service. It takes a long time to get good at any profession. I was at a point where I could have started having even more influence on greater number of people from staff sergeant onward to uh, inspector, even superintendent. That was taken out. That has to be stopped. Uh, calling people like me from your organization for heterodox ideas has to be held to account. And, and this is where police on guard has become an inter interested in my case. I don't have uh, legal representation on my side. Our, we can't unionize as police officers, but they call it a, an association that acts like a union. They have a lawyer that protects the interests of the Edmonton Police Association, but it's not looking out for the interests of the individuals who spoke out against this, namely me. So, yes, I agree with your guest. And I think uh, I won't, I forget your take on this, but anyway, the guests who say that they believe that we have to be here with love and open arms for those that were duped. But in the meantime, we can't allow our leadership positions to fire people like me for having an opinion on my day off. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I 100% I agree with you. And I 100% agree that the two things can be true at the same time. And I 100% agree that the people on our side of the argument need to get out of their own way and not let their ideology poison their interactions with people who disagreed with them. Um, because there were a lot of Canadians, a lot of Canadians who were who were actively, and I, I still can't even believe it's true, but actively, openly, and publicly discriminated against, even by their own governmental officials. Like, the fact that that happened in Canada is just obscene to me, and yet it is patently true. But as much as that sucks, those people, like we have to lick those wounds and be better than trying to inflict wounds on the people who disagreed with us because that is not going to help anyone, anyone. No. Um, but how do we go about the accountability portion? And who needs to be held accountable specifically? You mentioned leadership. I don't think we need to, 
don't think we we need to be dragging out people who made Facebook posts that we disagreed with over the pandemic into the streets and saying, you you know, you need to be accountable for your actions. Like we're so far beyond that. That is not a country that is healing. Doing that does not heal a country and this country needs to heal. But who, who do we need to respectfully and lawfully hold to account? That's why I think respectfully, I'm a good test case. So I was completely trusted within the law enforcement community. And then some leadership thought best on their behalf to eliminate me. So this is why, um, this is partly why I'm on your show. Uh, it's, it's not just about Rick Abbott. This has got ramifications for police officers across the nation. And I, I believe I'm a good test case for that. And that's why police on guard is interested. So, yes, my colleagues, the ones that said we shouldn't treat people who decide not to take the medication, we can't hold that against them. But whoever decided to not only encourage uh, the, the culling of Rick Abbott, but those who supported it. So in, from the police commission on up through the upper management, those people have to be held to account to these things. Otherwise, this will never get better. They've, they, so those who decided that I should no longer be part of the law enforcement community are winning in the sense that they just keep calling people like me. And, and it's the ramifications are long-term. So even in my community, the, the, the skill sets that I would have from my 25 years with police, I can't get a job inside of any of those careers anymore because they're all afraid. Don't touch that guy. He must be crazy. He spoke out against the mandates. So and, until we can change that attitude where, where uh, people are allowed to speak out and have an opinion on their time off, th this is not going to get better. So the good news is, I guess, the, the bad news is, I like to start with the bad news. The bad news is we're in the middle of this right now, and, and there's nobody defending the freedom of speech and freedom of association of our police members on their time off. And the good news is we have a perfectly good test case. And I'm the first one to say in, in the same vein of good news is that we're here with open arms for our colleagues who were duped. Which is beautiful. Um, there's a portion of your story that I, I, I don't fully understand yet. And I, I want to kind of understand more you said the the two things that the Edmonton Police Service brought against you in their process of forcing you into retirement or tongue-in-cheek firing you were that you gave a speech at Coots that you did not give. You gave it in Milk River, where there was law-abiding demonstrations happening, and that you made social media posts that you did not post because you don't have social media. You must have raised those points in at some point during that week that your, I don't know, case was being reviewed or however it ended up going down. Did you, like, how were those points received by the people that you were talking with? Like, it sounds like you were terminated under two conditions that are incorrect, right? Where is that sitting? Professional standards branch never asked the question. You're right. I did tell individuals the story. I told my superintendent the story at the time. I'm I'm friends with my superintendent, and he trusts me. He trusts me just like 
the, the other cops that know me. So th this is an important part of the story that you need to hear too from my visit to Coots. If anybody was doubting which side of the law Rick Abbott was on, this story confirms it. So while we were in Coots, uh, if you talk to me long enough, Zach, this conversation will go around to hunting, just so you know. Oh, I love I it. Let's to, go. <laughs> <laughs> I've always joked that I, I was a part-time cop and a full-time hunter. So while I was down in Coots, standing around a fire pit, what else do you talk about? And uh, I had just shot a mule deer with an eye shot out there. My family's got some high-priority elk uh, licenses in that area that are coming to fruition in the next year. So... I'd been speaking to a, a group of guys at the fire pit about this. And uh, here, here's the irony in a mea culpa. I was using my position of authority to my advantage, which is against the police act. I've always found that when I get permission to hunt on land in Southern Alberta, I tell them I'm a cop. Well, for a couple of reasons, A, I'm proud of it or was. No, I'm proud of my career. I shouldn't say that. I'm proud of being a cop. Plus farmers are generally a little more, forgiving when they hear that you're not there to steal cows and that you're uh they might as well have good people on their land hunting anyway so i was working on some elk permission <laughs> standing here on the fire and uh, I, I gave out my information my cell number to one of the fellas and i, I could tell that there's somebody else in the crowd that kind of left the conversation quickly there was quite a group of people there and uh I have to be careful how I tell the story because obviously there was a confidential informant to the RCMP standing around that fire. And he wasn't worried about the elk hunting. He was worried about this guy telling everybody that he's a cop. Within 15 minutes of this other fellow leaving the conversation quite quickly, I get a text from a, an RCMP counterpart of mine, just to keep it loose, who was heavily involved in the tactical operations at Coots, asking if I'm in Coots. So I answer, sure, I am. We quickly get into a phone call, and he says, what the heck are you doing in Coots? I told him. I came down here to see who's telling the truth. I said, somebody's lying, and we know who it is now. It's the mainstream media is lying about who's here in Coots. And anyway, he's Ricky crazy bugger. Anyway, he says, have you been in the cabin there? What was it called? Smugglers. I want to call it Wranglers. But I think the, the cabin in Coots that the protesters were housed in was called Smugglers. And I told him, you bet, I've had a full tour of it. So he's loving it. Because of my tactical background, I know the questions he's looking for. He's asking for the layout of the building, what kind of problems they'd have if it ever became a, a rescue that they needed to get into that building. They hadn't seen the basement. I've been showing every four corners of the building on, on a tour that day. The folks that toured me at first were a little skeptical. They're like, are you sure you're not undercover? <laughs> being in this building and i said look at this haircut i'm on top of the covers i have nothing to hide i also I'm, told you i'm, I'm a not cop, a, which would be a terrible way I, to be yeah. undercover <laughs> <laughs> so i'd seen the entire layout of the building and i was relaying this information to my rcmp counterpart even though i'm in coots this fellow had a high level of trust at the operations down there. And he's trusting me to give him a layout of the building. He's asking if I've seen any bad guys. And I'm telling him, there's no bad guys here. I'd seen one guy in the crowd that looked a little touched, like he was uh, suffering from personal issues. But bad guy, no. And I don't know who bad guys are. They're not here. These are, if I was to describe them, they're Christian farmers. Mm -hmm. If I was to use a label, that's who was there. Mm -hmm. And they're on our side. I said, in, in, in terms of firearms in this building, 
you can stuff a pistol anywhere, but these are not the pistol talking type of people. And uh, the trust trust goes further that I can't tell this part on your story, but I was entrusted with an operation that the RCMP were going to uh, do operationally down there. Mm-hmm. And, and I was given the missions plans for it. So the irony of this is that I'm within eye shot of the organizers of the Coots blockade, not eye shot, almost arm's reach. While I'm on the phone getting mission plans from a trusted colleague of mine. And I understood his mission plans. I understand the safety that they'd be doing to try and limit uh, violence at, at the border. I'm on the law-abiding side. So uh, be careful, and I'm not rambling here, and I get back to your question. Does anybody know the story? Sh- sure. I, I told individuals within the police service this portion of the story. But Professional Standards Branch doesn't know the story. They just went straight to suspend without pay. Uh, the commission, which normally the police commission normally should look into these matters to make sure that the chief and the upper management aren't uh, unlawfully using their authority to push people like me out, rubber stamped it without hearing the story. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, no, nobody's asked, which again is partly why I'm here. I think yeah. it's a compelling Canadian story that Canadians should hear about. And I think it's some. Uh, as a, at an individual level, but the ramifications for this, if Canadians want their police officers to be able to follow constitutional laws, this needs to be looked into. Yeah, absolutely. What about the police officers on the ground at Coots? I'm sure you didn't just talk to demonstrators. You must have talked because you at that time were a police officer. You must have had many conversations with the police who were on duty at the border. Um, what were those conversations like? The same. You're right. I went to, I, I intentionally went to the police officers at both. I went to the command in Milk River and then I spoke to the officers who were stationed in Coots. It was the same as what we call extra duty, where different events hire police officers to uh, watch concerts, say hockey games. It was that atmosphere. The, the police officers on the ground there were enjoying the double time. They were enjoying the overtime. <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah. it's 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 funny, not funny, in the sense that uh, Dennis Prager he writes about this in one of his new Rational Bible books. He, he says there's three things that allow societies to partake in the, in this evilness, and the first one is indoctrination. So with the propaganda that I'd confirmed we we're seeing uh, being spread across the police service combined with a benefit. So people benefiting from these rules and police officers working overtime week on end, benefiting financially from these mandates uh, add up to a third problem of a, a, Mr. Prager called it a paucity of people willing to speak out. And I didn't know what paucity meant. P-A-U-C-I-T-Y. It means like nobody. A paucity of people willing to speak out against these issues. Uh, Proudly, I'm that paucity in Canada, I guess, where one promoted police officer that I know of said, this is uh, what we're doing to our people is wrong. So if you have indoctrination coupled with people benefiting from 
the measures and nobody speaking out against the immoral actions, you'll get bad effects. So the, to answer your question, the police on the ground there, they were just loving the e easy overtime. Can you imagine policing Zach and David for a hundred bucks an hour? All you do is talk hockey and hunting. Mm. It's mm. great money to do nothing. That, that's what the police officers on the ground at these events were doing until they were ordered to go arrest people in Ottawa. So they didn't Thankfully, sorry. They didn't feel threatened by anyone at the border or in Milk River. They didn't feel like they were handling a tactically uh, unsafe or volatile situation necessarily. They were just enjoying garnering a little bit of overtime. The easiest money ever made by a police officer. There's only one way to say it. Don't get me wrong. Those poor guys <laughs> at the front in Milk River who had to listen to the horn honking, it would be violent in some opinion. I'm, yeah. I shouldn't be facetious. The horn honking would get old after a shift, for sure. If, if <laughs> That would get old. But if you could put up with the horn honking, the, the choice positions would be further away from the horn honking. Very easy money. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what do you hope... What do you hope to get out of this story? So you're living through this story. You're trying to hash out what it means. You're trying to garner some sort of benefit. Maybe I'm saying this poorly, but you're trying to do something with it that not only um, completes the story in a nice way for you, but sets a precedent for Canada going forward. What do you hope to get out of this? Yeah, at the, at the individual level, I think the right legal representation would say you can't do that to our members and there would have to be compensation for that or reinstatement. The bigger would picture Would you reinstate is, if given the option? I can qualify this afternoon and all of my weapon systems. I just need the nod. Mm -hmm. You're ready to uh, go. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, there'd be other issues around that obviously, but, um, the big picture is how do we protect or how do we give constitutional protection to our police officers to within the police act? And, and I'm not a lawyer, but I, I think the police acts existed pre-charter. So there is no protection for police officers for freedom of association. There was no investigation into who is at Milk River. There was no investigation into who I was consorting with and speaking publicly to. So there's no protection for police officers. And if going forward, Canadians think that police officers should be able to form their own opinions, then there needs to be some kind of reform within the police act to protect. I guess I'm a whistleblower. Right. There's got to be some, call me a whistleblower, I guess. There's no protection. They can arbitrarily say you are suspended without pay. And uh, again, to be intellectually honest, I didn't retire. My police association uh, leadership agreed with me saying, Rick, the police services can drag this on for years. You'll, this will never come to fruition for you. You'll, you'll just never get a dime out of it. You're, they get it. We understand why. You have to take your pension. It's it's a partial pension that I have. I never reached full pension, 
but a partial is a lot better than nothing when you're, I have two young kids. I, 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 I joked too that I don't identify as a fired cop. I identify as a retired cop after the proud career that I had with the city of Edmonton. Mm-hmm. So they agreed with me. There's, there's no end in sight for this. There's no protection for you. you this could be dragged on for years. So that's why I was, that's why I say I was fired. I was forced out. Right. Right. That sucks, man. Um, I mean, I know we just met today, but you, I, I'll tell you what, if I get, if I've, if I get pulled over, I'd love to get pulled over by a cop like you. <laughs> you, you seem like, you seem like an honest man. You seem like a good man. Um, and you, and I appreciate that even though it costs you something, you took a stance for something that you believed you couldn't ignore. And that's important to note. Um, you, there's, there's not enough people who are willing to just say, I don't agree with what's happening around me. And even though it creates discomfort, I will stand in that position. And so I want to commend you for, for taking the stand that you did and, um, for the years of service that you, you served the people of Edmonton. And, um, I hope, I hope that we can one day have you back on and, and hear about the wonderful and beautiful outcome of the story. Uh, because, uh, I think I, I have massive amounts of respect for police officers. I think they do a tough job and, um, I, I would love to see gentlemen like you in the force. Support from folks like you is what will help this too, Zach. I'm not the only one that's listening to your show. We appreciate what you're doing. Uh, these stories are getting out and it's, it's because of people like you. This is an important job that you and David are doing. And uh, I think this is the way out of this. You guys are the way out of this. So thank you. <laughs> well, that's very, very kind of you. We, uh, we're humbly just trying to do our part. And um, every, it feels like every individual has such a small little piece that, that they can offer. And David and I are just here in our corner trying to do what we can to build a, a, a Canada that we believe in. Because, I mean, I, I never questioned my love for this country before the last couple of years. And then all of a sudden, all this crazy stuff happened. And I still love this country. And it's not like... It's not like, it's like a relationship. Every relationship goes through uh, moments of, of blemish. And I feel like we have, we have um, experienced a few Canadian blemishes over the past number of years, but I love this country and I believe in this country and it's full of people like you. And, um, and I, I want to see, I want to see us put that back into Canada. I'm on your side. Keep going. Thanks, brother. Thank you, Rick. Thank you for joining us. And <clears throat> thank you for being, as you said, one of the only people to stand up within the police force. And uh, I think people who are listening should reflect on the fact that we need to help the people who stood up for us because it's not easy. And and before you go, Rick, just uh, I'd like you to share from the heart just the difficulty that it is to that that you've gone through the the existential difficulty the the looking at your life and saying i'm standing up others aren't standing up for me or others aren't standing up at all what does that feel like for you and maybe share that with people so that they can get an idea of how hard it is to to give everything you have in a sense you 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 have a 25 year career 
that you put on the line to tell the truth. Ultimately, not even to tell the truth to some degree, to find the truth. You were just going to find out what the truth was. And when you were there, you shared uh, the truth of what the people were doing in Milk River. And that alone was enough for people to take you down. So maybe share a bit of that, because I think it's important for people to understand that this is not easy. And and maybe people listen to people like you and they think, what a hero. And, and that's true. But what is the pain of being a hero? Yeah, I won't sugarcoat it. That's a good question, David. It's horrible. This past year has been horrible. I don't know how an analogy I just thought of now, because we, I debate this all the time, is somebody wrongfully convicted and jailed. What did Milgard feel like in Saskatchewan when he was wrongly convicted and sat in jail? This is a life sentence for me. Like, let's, I won't sugarcoat it. This is going to, this affects my uh, family's trajectory. Uh, the loss of friendships and colleagues because of the divisiveness brought on by somebody else, not by me, has been life changing. Um, and it's hard for me to take those compliments of, of bravery um, and what. To this day, what I think of whenever I get scared is I listen to Dennis Prager's advice again, where he, he he says, how are people brave? And he says, you tell yourself you're going to be brave. So as soon as I get scared, I stop and I say, I have to be brave. You and I have had conversations in the past where I was I called you at a time where things are going wrong here. How, how am I ending up on the other side of this? And it was scary. But we, my family has built a, a solid home here. We've stayed modest in our, uh, in our structure so that we can weather these storms. But to answer your question, there, there's no putting into words, I think, the horribleness of being wrongfully convicted. It's going to take a long time, but I, I think we're going to come out on the right side of this. And I'm part of that group. You guys are part of that group. So sure, you can understand it. For the people that aren't going through this, I, that's the only analogy I can give is it's wrongful conviction. But I'm going to stay brave by saying that I'm going to be brave. And uh, that's what gets us through to the next day. Well, thank you for being brave and for for not giving up yourself, right? Because I know there's probably times where people want to give up uh, because it's so hard because because it feels like you're alone, but you're not alone. And that's really what the convoy showed us is a lot of people felt alone and then some brave people stood up and, and took risks like yourself. And some of those people are suffering alone right now, or they feel like they're suffering alone. And I think we need to come together as uh, a movement, a group, uh, an idea, and help one another. Because we can't, we can't be letting the people who took stands go down for us without at least fighting for them too. So thank you, Rick. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. 
You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is. Thank you.